my guest today says that hope is not a plan. Uh, Henry Das is a serial entrepreneur, business coach. Uh, he's also a screenwriter, an investor, husband, father, and somebody that talks about baseball cards. But more importantly, in the episode today, he's talking about entrepreneurship and some of the mistakes that entrepreneurs make or wannabe entrepreneurs make. And then also we touch into the areas of financial literacy and understanding money better, both from a business perspective and a life perspective. And if you like what you hear from Henry, he's made a very generous offer to the listeners of the REI Branded Podcast, is if you reach out to him and mention the podcast, then he will give you a month of coaching for free, uh, four half-hour sessions. And I think you'll like what you hear and, and may take him up on the offer. I'm sure you're going to enjoy this episode. You're listening to the REI Branded Podcast, helping you build your real estate personal brand. If you want to stand out from the crowd, attract the right leads, right partners, and right clients every time, you're in the right place. My name is Paul Kopkutter, and each week we'll be looking to decode and uncover what makes you, the real estate business owner, brandtastic. Each episode is intended to be valuable, cut to the chase, and actionable, so you can spend less time marketing your business and still get the results you want. Thank you for listening. Now let's get to work on making you brandtastic. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of the REI Branded Podcast. Uh, I'm very pleased to introduce you to my guest today, Henry Das. He's a serial entrepreneur, business coach, screenwriter, investor, a loving husband and father, and someone you could talk to about baseball cards. Ah. Uh, he started his first business in 1991, selling, installing, servicing, and financing computers to large corporations. And since then, he's found a, a succession of firms in the e-commerce, finance, real estate, and consumer product spaces. For much of the past decade, Henry has taken his experience as an entrepreneur and used it as a platform to coach other business owners and founders with top-line sales under $10 million. His debut book, FQ, Financial Intelligence, is the culmination of his six decades of financial knowledge and experience and is a 432-page book on everything you need to know about how to grow and manage your money. He also offers a 20-week course where he teaches that to you one-on-one, -on -one, and he also runs curated masterminds on business and finance. In his infinite leisure, I love that word, infinite <laughs> leisure, he, he writes screenplays for fun, plays golf travels when he's not on lockdown, and plays Settlers of Catan with his three boys and does other fun stuff. And you actually go to his website, he has designed some additional pieces of the Settlers of Catan. I have kind of cool. done these mega boards where we combine like three sets together and make a gigantic. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of fun. We have we've played a lot during the lockdown because there's not a lot else to do. So right. thanks really for having cool. me, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. Well, thank you for coming today. And that's probably a great place to start. It, you know, a lot of people struggle with starting even one business, and, and you, you're a serial entrepreneur. So what are the biggest lessons that you've learned from going through that multiple times? Well, the, you know, the first business, which I started 30 years ago with a partner, you know, we were, we were deer in the headlights. You know, everything that we did, it was the first time that we were doing it. So 
Uh, there's a lot to be said for uh, for iterating, right? You you have a business, and then um, the next time you do it, it's like, oh yeah, this is not unfamiliar. But there's going to be a whole bunch of new stuff, which will be unfamiliar. And over the course of time, it becomes cumulative, to the point where now, as a as a business coach, uh, it's rare that I don't have some personal experience in something that one of my clients is going through. And so if you were to, if you were to go back to your first business or one of the others that you ran, what, what would you do differently? What would you say to people thinking about starting a business? Well, I started the first business as a side hustle. So I'm a big believer that you should, you know, kind of rent before you buy. Mm -hmm. Um, but that can also be a little bit of a tender trap because some people will do that side business, maintain their existing life in cub cubicle world and, and never, never kind of pull the ripcord, right? They get into that comfort zone where it's like, well, you know what? I got all the advantages of working for a big company and the benefits and the this and the that, and I'm just going to keep my side hustle small. Um, but then something funny happens and the side hustle starts to grow and starts to overtake, uh, you know, the nest. And now what do you do, right? right? It, it can be uh, difficult to make that transition. You know, I've seen it a whole bunch of times. We call them entrepreneurs, right? In, in, the, in the coaching business, you know, they want to be an entrepreneur, but they are unwilling to give up the trappings that cubicle world provides. Um, and that's it's a tough spot to be. Actually, how do you how do you help people how do you help people overcome that? I've had a hard time with entrepreneurs. <laughs> I gotta be honest. A lot of them are just they're just they they just can't get off the mark. Uh it's been a, it's been sort of an exercise in frustration. So it's like, okay, um keep doing what you're doing then. Well, Henry, I don't want to do what I want to do. I said, well, then don't and do something different. Well, I don't want to give up. Something has to give. Right. Right. And then you'll turn around five years later and, and nothing's given. They'll just continue to operate that way. And look, if it, it's not for me to judge. If it's working for you, great. But the fact that they reached out to me is an indication that it's not working for them, that there's some kind of a problem here. And you can't, it's hard to be a slave to multiple masters. It's hard enough to be a slave to one master, even though the, the, the whole concept of slavery is so abhorrent. Uh, I use that metaphorically, put it right. that way. What is it that, what are the sort of challenges or why, why do people come to you? What, what are the things that they're kind of facing as entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs that, that you see kind of again and again and the, the pitfalls that? It's the same reason that, that many or even most people go to the doctor. Something hurts. They're not sure where it's coming from. I go to the doctor. I've got this kind of pain. It's not localized. And um, what can you do about it? <laughs> right? And the doctor looks at it and says, well, I'm going to have to run uh, $50,000 worth of tests unless we can narrow this stuff down. Um, it's rare that somebody comes because everything's clicking on all cylinders and they just want to level up, right? They, I've used the analogy of Tiger Woods, right? Because I'm a golfer. Right, and Tiger Woods um, has been through multiple coaches. When he was destroying the world back from '99 to through those 2000s, where he won like one out of every two tournaments, and was just, and not only one, it was just killing people. He switched coaches. 
because he was unhappy with the way he was playing or most people look at it and said i would give my eye teeth if i could just play like that for one hole forget about you know tournament after tournament 83 right. tournament wins or whatever just give me one hole where i could play like tiger woods but that's the difference between somebody like that who's who's iconic who is just not satisfied even though to the outside observer everything is fine but what i find is that people come because there's some there's some in some cases litany of reasons maybe they're burned out maybe they're dissatisfied with a partnership my first business was a partnership um, and I made some some blunders. Didn't have a buy sell agreement. A lot of you know a lot of different things that I did wrong that I learned from. And then I had another partner, and that one was even worse than the first partner. So obviously, I didn't do a good job of learning. Um, I wrote about a lot of this in, um, in my book. Uh, you 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 want to not make the same mistakes over and over again. You want to make brand new, fresh mistakes, right? right. That's kind of how I look at things. And what, what inspired you to, to decide to help other business owners? Well, I, I kind of always in, informally, since I started as an entrepreneur, I kind of informally had advised people. Um, when I turned 50, and I'm 62 now, um, you know, my mom died. I went through a little bit of a mid, midlife crisis, and I moved, and... Um, I sort of sat down and said, what do I want this really the second half of my career to look like? And for the first time in my life, I actually sat down and figured out a kind of a business plan. And I came up with a list of, of uh, I call it the three-legged stool, right? What must I have? What would I like to have if I could have it? And what can I not have under any circumstances? And I use that that paradigm with, with my with, um my clients as well. But sometimes when we talk about hiring, that's the perfect thing to figure out when you're looking for a candidate. All right, what must I have? And what would I really, really like to have? And what can't I have under any circumstance? And that acts as the poison pill. That's the deal breaker. That's the stuff that if they align and everything perfectly, they get a hundred on the on the on the must have and a hundred on the like to have. But if they have one thing and they can't have under any circumstances, that disqualifies them. Right. So, so I wanted to be location independent, right? Um, I had an office in New York City for 15 years, you know, paying huge rent, having to deal with all of the headaches of, of that. And it's like, I don't want to do that. Now that's before COVID. You know, now everybody and his kid brother works from home. Um, yeah. Although I say you're not, you're not working from home. You're living at your office. Um, <laughs> I, I figured out that in my, I guess. 40-year career, uh, I have worked from home about 40% of the time. So I'll work from home, and then it starts to, the world starts to get too small, and I get an office. Uh, so which is another thing. When the side hustler wants to legitimize their business, they may have to change some things. At least that was the case be pretty much before COVID. You know, may have to go out and get an office. Can't work from home, right? People are going to discover once this is over that, that um, you know, living at your office as it is, is not all it's cracked up to be. Uh, it's going to be very interesting to see in the real estate uh, business, because I've been writing about real estate. Uh, you know, I write a twice monthly um, newsletter. I call it the DOS FQ update. I write about financial stuff. So this morning I was writing about the housing market. And the Case-Shiller index is up almost 20% for the year 2021, right? 
that's a huge, huge, huge move. We bought in uh, December and we paid over ask and we paid all cash because that was the only way to get the deal. But, you know, we're real estate veterans. Um, a lot of people are, you know, first time buyers, especially batting their home, their head against the wall because they can't break through. Um, but what happens when things normalize and maybe the mothership is going to want you to come back to their very, very expensive offices that they have leases that run for the next 20 years. And that will cost millions of dollars to break. Right. Uh, and now you've moved to the hinterlands, right? Sure. You got more space, but now you got an hour and a half commute. So there's a lot of uncertainty that still needs to be shaken out. And right now we're in a little bit of a fishbowl, um, but it's coming, coming down the line. And what are the main obstacles you see entrepreneurs facing as you? Um, well, I wrote, a, I wrote a thing. It's on my, it's on my, um, my website. If you go to um, dustknowledge.com, um, five reasons small businesses fail, right? The uh, number five is confusing passion with commitment, right? Sometimes people are insanely passionate, but then when it comes down to the drudgery, they lack the commitment that's necessary to follow through. Just like the entrepreneur who lacks the commitment to cut the umbilical cord um, to their employer and, and go alone. Uh, that, that's tough. Um, you know, number two is messaging. They don't understand what it is they do, right? The so-called elevator pitch. What do you do? I coach entrepreneurs, right? That's a three-word elevator pitch. Um, although funny thing is I'm, I'm, I'm not onboarding entrepreneurs anymore. I'm focusing on coaching people in finance. So I've kind of made a pivot um, recently. Number three is money. They don't have enough. They don't know how to raise it. Um, they give away equity instead of uh, um, exhausting the debt markets. Number two, I already mentioned hiring. People generally suck at hiring. And then the number one reason that small businesses fail is your idea sucks. It's just <laughs> as simple as that. You never should have executed it. It was just a dumbass idea. <laughs> I mean, pretty basic stuff. <laughs> it took, you know, it took 40 years in business to come up with five simple things that you should watch out for when you're trying to run a business. Right. You mentioned money. Uh, was that one of the kind of stimuluses for you writing the book? And are you, have you I seen kind of that financial literacy not being? Yeah. The that, level they, that well, I, I see it a lot with entrepreneurs, um, you know, with, with a few exceptions of my clients. Many of them have no clue about a balance sheet, an income statement, a statement of cash flow. Ah, I got people who can do that. Yeah. All right. I get that. You know, you got accountants and CPAs, but you still got to know a little bit. Right. Um, you do have to. Uh, so that's important. But even simple things like, uh, like, you know, getting a line of credit. Right. So uh, the time to get a line of credit is not when you need it. Because when you need it, you're going to have a tough time. You got to do it, you know, when it's available. Doesn't matter whether you're ever going to use it or not to you. Because uh, people don't realize that too much business can be just as a death knell as too little. Um, it's just, that's just kind of how it works. So you need to have the money for cash flow. So you, you mentioned, uh, you've pivoted recently. I, I saw you mentioned it on your, your website that you're no mm -hmm. longer taking entrepreneur clients or new ones, onboarding new ones. Right. What, why the pivot? What was the reason to switch? 
there were a couple of reasons. One is I decided in my old age that um, I just wanted to pick a lane, right? I always liked having all sorts of different stuff. You know, you read my little my little intro, the settlers and the baseball cards and the golf. Uh, yeah, maybe I'm ADD. Uh, I always liked having all sorts of, you know, different balls in the air. But as I've gotten older, I've decided that, um, you know, maybe I want less balls in the air. Um, certainly the uh, overall addressable market of coaching people within um, personal finance is much greater than there is in the entrepreneurship world. Um, you know, they're, they're, it's just a, a much, much larger market. Number two is a lot of people have plowed into um, financial markets since the, um, the, the bottom of March of last year. And you're starting to see the market hiccup now. So I think there's going to be um, a little bit of an uptick in, in demand. And I want to anticipate that. So if I'm a little bit early, that's okay. Um, I just kind of reading the tea leaves and the stuff that I'm feedback I'm getting from the world is that there's a lot of newbie um, traders and investors uh, out there. And they haven't seen the tide go out yet. Right. But they will. Because the market is very, very um, overbought at this point. We're seeing some hiccups now. September tends to be a, a weak month, but we could see weakness going all the way through the fall. Um, I don't have a crystal ball, or at least mine. I have one, but it doesn't work. Uh, but I look at it, and the same thing with the real estate market, talking about how um, you know 20% uptick in nine months, that's not sustainable, right? right? It simply isn't. Why do I say that? It's because it's never happened in the history of mankind. It'll always correct. Right. There's an old saying, you know, people, people come out, I read it on the internet. This time it's different. It's like, no, it's not. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but it's never different. It's always the same because <laughs> people are always the same. So how, how, would, how would you advise uh, somebody like a real estate investor from a financial perspective then? Obviously, from an entrepreneur's perspective, you've kind of covered, but what, were the, what are the kind of things that you would be talking to somebody like a financial investor, a real estate investor? Well, the, the first place I start is by, by, um, by sort of taking an accounting of everything, right? Uh, not only your current liabilities, your, your, uh, your balance sheet, uh, your cash flow, all of that, but your leverage, right? And your availability of cash. And, and then think about, in terms of what are your goals and objectives? What are you trying to accomplish? And how does that match up to the marketplace, right? The reason that, that we saw such uh, ridiculous behavior during the Great Recession here in the US was, uh, was all about leverage, right? People were over leveraged, they just were. Um, so we'll do some very simple arithmetic and we'll come up with a with a with let's say a loan to value rate um, ratio that not only can their their finance partners live with, but they can live with, right? When they put their head on their pillow, are they going to be sleep okay, or are they are they dancing on the edge of a volcano? And if the market happens to hiccup just a little bit, they're in trouble, right? Because uh, it's tough. Real estate, being a real estate professional. Um, uh, I was I went away this past weekend and a friend of mine has uh, a rental property on his, you know, he lives in a house and it has a, a three unit rental property. And um, it, it um, 
you know, it's a taxpayer. And his taxes are, he happens to be living in a place where the taxes are tens of thousands of dollars. And he's running into a problem with his tenants, right? And it's like, okay, well, you chose to be a landlord. That's just going to happen. Um, you got to deal with that, right? So there's a lot, a lot, a lot of moving parts. Um, and some of them you're going to be really good at, and some of them you're going to suck, right? And the ones you're really good at, you should do all of those, you know, if you can, if you have the bandwidth to do it. And the ones that you're not so good at, you should find somebody who's really good at it and pay them to do that for you. Right. Um, I, the mistake I see with entrepreneurs of, of all of all stripe is they're spending a lot of time doing things that they're simply not good at. Well, Henry, if I work hard enough at it, I'll get good at it. It's like, no, if you work really hard at it, you might get mediocre. But you have to accept the fact, and this is a tough one for entrepreneurs of all stripe, to accept the fact that you, you, you can't be uh, great at everything. You think just, sometimes? Do you think sometimes that is avoidance, though, versus? Yeah, of course. Sometimes it's scarcity mindset. Well, you know what? Trying to be good at something. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to hire somebody. I don't want to pay somebody to do this. I'll just do it myself. Then I'll ask. Okay, what's the opportunity cost? Because if you think you're working for free is somehow gonna gonna offset having to pay somebody else, you're living in the fool's paradise. Just because you don't pay yourself doesn't mean that your time is invaluable. It has a value. And I guarantee you, as an entrepreneur, it's higher than the value it is for somebody that you hired. Right. It just is. But you keep your blinders on. You convince yourself. The human brain is wonderful in how it can hold really two diametrically opposed concepts in perfect relief. Right. right? I mean, we, we live with constant contradictions every day. So part of my job as, as a coach is to call those out, right? right? I can't make you do something that you're not going to do. All I can do is point out that um, your, your thought process is flawed, and here's why. And then you can decide whether you want to continue to do it, whether I'm right or wrong. <laughs> And, and we work on that to try to sand a, some of those rough edges off. Right. And do you think sometimes as well, they're doing it to not do the tougher things that entrepreneurs have to do to run a business? Because I, I do come across, in the past, I've come across a lot of people that run a business, but then they think they never have to be in sales or they never have to, you know, and so is that sometimes they're avoiding the difficult... I just want to stop a second and ask you about your web presence. You know that people are going to Google and check you out online if they want to do business with you. And so it's incredibly important that you have a reliable, secure hosting web service. And a stable hosting plan that provides fast site speed. And if you're installing a website for the first time, a nice, easy to use, secure, one-click system to install WordPress. That's why I recommend and use Bluehost, which powers more than 2 million websites online and is the number one recommended hosting provider by WordPress. It's got 24-7 support, which is really good, free security certificates, and a free domain name registration. Uh, Bluehost web hosting is a powerhouse. If you'd like to get a special offer through this podcast go to the show notes from this episode 
click on the blue post uh, image or link and they'll take you straight there to get a special offer. Now back to the show. Yeah, of course. I mean, I'm 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 working on a book uh, that's called has the unlikely title of Codfish, and Codfish stands for um, the customer support, operations, development, finance, infrastructure, sales and marketing, human resources. There, I, I I call them the seven silos that every business, whether you are Amazon or just a solopreneur, you have these seven silos. And in large corporations, they are siloed. There's a reason I use that word is because they don't, you know, they don't necessarily communicate with each other. And even in a one-man operation, they don't communicate with each other. <laughs> or one-woman <laughs> operation, which is kind of comical. But every business has those seven silos. Doesn't have eight, doesn't have six. It's got seven. Everything that you can think of that you need to do in a business is going to fit into one of those areas. And what I've discovered with entrepreneurs is there's usually um, one or two that they're really, really good at. Uh, three that they're kind of okay or mediocre at, and two that are one or two that's their Achilles heel. So you talked about sales and marketing, right? You could have a kick-ass entrepreneur who's really great in the six silos, but not so much in sales and marketing. And that business is going to fail. Because <laughs> if nobody can sell or market the product, no one's going to know about it. And you're done. doesn't matter how great you execute, uh, how wonderful your business plan is. If you're, if you're missing that, you are in trouble, right? right. Yeah, um, you, were you were sharing with me that um, you've recently been studying your real estate for your real estate license. I Yes, I have. I finished my state of Connecticut um, requires 60 hours. Uh, I had to do it on Zoom. I got to be honest, it was tough. <laughs> it was tough. I was, I, I'll, I'll share this just <laughs> because I'm kind of an open book. But after a while, um, I just muted the guy and I put a, I put a Netflix window <laughs> so they could see me on camera, but I was like binge watching atypical uh, <laughs> on Netflix because he's not really teaching you anything. A lot of, he's just kind of going over the stuff that's in this, you know, these two gigantic books and I can learn stuff from a book. I don't need you. I don't need a, And this is a three hour zoom call three nights a week Whoa. for like six weeks. It was tough. It's been a long time. So it was, you know, when people complain about remote learning, they ain't kidding. I mean, if you've got, if you've got uh, grammar school kids or high school kids, man, I, I don't know. My, luckily, my, my, uh, although my oldest, my youngest is in college. So he's a junior in college. So he had to do the last couple semesters of that remote stuff. It's like, I, I, I give him credit because it is hard. Um, but yes, I take, so, and then I did all that. And then I had to wait weeks before the class ended on July 26th and I'm taking the test on October 14th. So the whole system is kind of broken. Um, but once I take the test, yeah, then I'll, then I'll become a, um, the world's oldest real estate salesperson. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what's the plan behind that? What are you hoping to do with it? Well, my, my main goal is to be able to kind of peek behind the curtain. I want to be able to see. Um, the sausage being made. I want to be able to see deals before they hit the MLS. I mean, it's been a, it's been a feeding frenzy uh, lately in the real estate market for all, all the folks who are out there. So, but I'm old enough to know that it's, that it's not always been this way. Um, I, we sold a house in 2010. 
uh, right in the middle of the Great Recession and a, a multi-million dollar house uh, to boot. And it was you know, pretty terrifying because where are the buyers? There are no buyers to be found, at least in the New York area. Uh, when we bought our first apartment in New York City in the early 90s, it was the same thing. New York was uh, crack central, Cry highest crime rate. Um, I know because I use this in one of my screenplays. 2,600 murders in the city of New York in 1992, the year we bought that apartment. Can you imagine? That's more than five a day. And here we are to, to you know, 30-somethings buying an apartment in New York City to raise a family. What were we thinking? I tell you what, we bought at the bottom, though. So who knew? We didn't only knew that in hindsight. So it's, you know, it's a crazy, crazy world, but there is um, enormous opportunity in there, whether it be rental properties or, you know, buy and flip. Um, it cycles. And we're in a, you know, we're, I think, at the kind of a peak of an up cycle right now. It's my, my personal feeling, but I don't know when it's going to crest and, and roll over. Tough to time things, you right. know. Um, I was talking to somebody and, you know, they're giving me the old adage of what are the three most important things in real estate, location, 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 right? Everybody's heard that one. I said, no, you're, you're wrong. There's, those are not the three most important things in real estate, not by a long shot. Three most important things are timing, timing, timing. Very true. Very true. Really, really, really is. If you've done enough transactions, you will know that timing is you can you can have the greatest property in the world and if your timing is wrong it's going to sit there like a white elephant right and in times like this even the the even the dogs with fleas sell over ask right yeah <laughs> so. very true and and do you what are you hoping to apply from your kind of six decades of knowledge as well to that to that industry are you using it mostly for your own vehicles and your own yeah, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm, I may be doing some some you know partnership with some people. I mean, at, at my age, I know people who have you know money to spend, money rattling around, but they they lack they lack uh, experience or acumen, or they've never run a business, or you know wh whatever the case may be. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of opportunity, but there's also a lot of uncertainty. Um, and until I get a chance to really see the sausage factory. Um, I'm I'm kind of keeping my options open as far as what I do. There's little there's little niche bits that I'm learning about. Um, there's a there's a, here in Connecticut there's something called a, a short sale short sale negotiator, which is an odd little speciality that I find interesting. There's also stuff through um, housing and, ur and urban development, um, but it's it's really too soon in this particular case to pick a lane. Right, which I guess is another object lesson for for um for entrepreneurs is uh, it's okay to be a little bit uncertain when you're running up your business. You may go through three, four, five, six different little little pivots or mini pivots. That's mm -hmm. totally normal. You know, writing a, a you know a chiseling a business plan in granite and then trying to execute that. Uh, I don't care if you're a Harvard MBA. Probably not going to work. Because until you actually get there, release it into the wild, right? Um, you don't know what the market's going to think, right? You have no, you really have no idea. 
and and things are changing so rapidly, aren't they? I was I just noticed this week Google is only twenty three years old. This week, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you look at Amazon. Amazon was selling yeah. books until about 15 years ago, right? Yeah. I mean, it's uh, Apple. I started my first business as an Apple dealer, right? Uh, Apple stock was in the mid-90s, about $4 a share. They were very, very close to going belly up. In fact, the the I still have the Time magazine with Steve Jobs and Bill Gates on the cover. I was an Apple valuated reseller when Gates agreed to continue to, to make Microsoft Office for the Mac and injected $150 million, million, not billion, $150 million into Apple to keep them alive. These two guys are on the cover in the mid nineties. Um, it seems quaint to today. It really does. That's pretty, pretty, pretty staggering. And it, so, if we're talking about your your favorite brands, is that is Apple that brand? Uh, yeah, you know, I'm 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 one of those weird people who uses Macs and PCs interchangeably. I always have. Um, we started as an Apple dealer back in I guess eighty nine, ninety, ninety one. Uh, we sold them mainly to art departments and Fortune five hundred companies. And then they started asking for us, do you do PCs, right? Yes, never sold a PC in my life. Do you sell printers? Yes, never sold a printer in my life, right? Answer to every question, <laughs> I used to say. The answer to every question is yes, right? It just is. Until that day comes where you can say, no, that's not what we do. You're really not a real business. But hopefully one day will come where you say, nope, that's not what we do. Even though the low-hanging fruit comes and you want to do the deal, you say, okay, we're good here. Um, so we started selling, even though we were selling, uh, you know, seven figures worth of Max, we started selling a lot more PCs because that's what people wanted. And so we made a little bit of a pivot. So I, I use them side by side. I'm, you know, equally power user in both, which is, which is fine. Uh, so that's a brand that I like a lot. Um, and I like, uh, I guess other brands would be, I like uh, Jeep. Just bought a new Jeep. I like Jeep, right? For automobiles. What about uh, favorite business leaders or, or entrepreneurs? Anybody that? Well, I love Steve. I, I love Steve Jobs, even though he was a horse's ass and wasn't the nicest person <laughs> in the world. In fact, uh, yeah, <laughs> he was a pretty he was a pretty interesting character. Um, he died too soon, but he has only himself to blame for that, which is sad. Uh, I like uh, Peter Lynch, who was the legendary um, Magellan fund manager, the best performing mutual fund manager in the history of mutual funds, had the greatest 20 year run in the history of mankind, uh, as far as an investor goes. And, and I've read a number of his books and they're real basic nuts and bolts, invest in what you see, right? Look at the world around you and you see cool stuff. Um, you know, he told the story of Haynes in this book. That's how old it is. Uh, when Haynes used to have this legs brand that used to, you know, pantyhose brand that came in a, in a thing the shape of an egg. And he showed it to his, you know, he was gobsmacked and he showed it to his wife and she rolled her eyes. It's like it's pantyhose. But he was dumbfounded by that. And so he did a lot of research and started buying up their stock and their stock did well, right? Really simple nuts and bolts, stuff like that. Um, 
And as long as you have, you know, a good risk management and are patient and you're not looking to make a crypto fortune or something like that. And, and uh, I laugh about the whole, you know, crypto world, because to me, it's a lot of snake oil, but hey, people are gazillionaires. Who am I to judge? Right. Um, do, you see, do you see that? Uh, that's an interesting kind of side, side uh, conversation for a second. What, what, what do you think of the crypto thing and, and where do you see it going? What's the... the problem that I have with crypto is that an organized government, and we don't have an org organized government here in the US, but if we had an organized government, they could crush that. They could just regulate it out of existence. Which is what's happening in China right now. They're starting which, to, which is right. what's happening in China right now. They have, you know, they have a totalitarian re regime, which we still have some of the trappings of democracy or, or representative republic here in the U.S. Uh, as dysfunctional as it is. Um, yeah. So you see, you see what happens. Um, part of it, I think, is the greater fool theory, right? The the uh, buy high sell higher as long as there's a fool greater than you you can make some money um and that that's that's existed since you know the pyramids i mean the, those kind of things have gone on my philosophy is that you should you know you want you want get rich slow schemes right it's really what you want you want to have a plan you want to build a strategic plan you want to have some go-to tactics Right. One of the we were talking about the real estate. I haven't quite figured out which are the tactics that I want to employ at this stage. Um, I have a you know a fairly loose idea of the the strategic direction that I that I want to go in, which is to try to capitalize on some niches. Right, there are riches and niches, as they say. Um, where are um, where are things being underserved? Now you have to be careful because very often there's a reason that things are being underserved. So when people pitch business ideas to me, and I have this happen all the time, I'll, I'll for one of the first questions I ask them is, who's doing what you're doing? Oh, nobody. I had a client say, oh, nobody, right? I said, well, that's a really big red flag because you ain't that smart. You just ain't. You think you invented it? Well, if you can't find me a bunch of people out there who either tried and failed and tell me why they did and why you're not going to, then I have to believe that there's no business there, right? Because almost anything that you can think of, somebody has already tried it. At least you've got to go find it. Um, and if they failed or if a bunch of people failed, it may just be that there's no addressable market. Even though it may be a fantastic, wonderful idea, there just aren't enough people who will pay $50 for it, right? There might be people who will pay $3 for it, right? It, it's sort of the... Um, sort of how the whole SaaS business works, right? You know, the idea that um, I want to sell 100,000 subscriptions to this service that costs, you know, $7 a month. Like anybody could pay seven. I run my whole business on a bunch of SaaS services that probably don't add up to more than 200 bucks in a, you know, in a month, you know, schedule once and, uh, you know, um, type form and a whole bunch of different things that I kind of, hello sign, things that I kind of, grew together. I don't have an integrated platform for them yet. That's the one downside. But there are people who are integrating those platforms to, to give you a sort of a one-stop shop, sort of like a Travago for, for um, SaaS platforms. Um, 
but some are so niche that you can't do it at $7 a month. You'd have to do it at 70 and who's going to pay that? Well, right. it might be a bunch of people who pay that, but it's not enough for you to stay alive. Good point. Mm. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned books. Uh, what books do you recommend? Um, one up on wall street is a great book. Uh, there's a book by Barry Schwartz called the paradox of choice. Uh, something that I tell everybody to, to read, especially if you're like in sales and marketing. Uh, sometimes people think, you know, more is better. Nope. No, you're the, you're the avatar for your consumer is a five-year-old. I don't mean that in a, in a derisive way. I've, I've raised up three five-year-old boys who are now pretty much adults now. Um, you know, you, you, you learn to ask uh, closed questions for them. You don't say, what would you like for dinner? Oh, I, I'd like the, you know, the, the steak frites at Le Voltaire in Paris. No, you ask, do you, like, do you want chicken nuggets or macaroni and cheese? Right. right. Sales is about as basic as that. Right. You give you give people, a, you know, a simple, in many cases, binary choice. Let them weigh the decision and make the choice. But if you give them a blank canvas, they're not going to be able to do anything. You give them too much latitude. So uh, another one, um, the checklist manifesto, a tool go on. Right. Another book I read a long time ago and he was a doctor and they, they instituted checklists in the operating room and in airlines, right? Um, a lot of businesses, uh, especially like things like the real estate business, really lend itself to checklists, right? right. Because tasks are repetitive. Right. And if you can do that, you can set it up in a way so that anybody can do the job. It's like McDonald's, right? You don't need um, an advanced degree from MIT to know that the that the french fries go in for seven minutes right not six minutes and 59 seconds not 701 seven minutes you know high schoolers do it and they do it well i, I found out just this week that chipotle is a was started by a former mcdonald's person i wouldn't doubt and, that and yeah. they have that production line don't they which uh, exactly the same kind of that that's how they do it and and uh, and and they do it well Right. Mm -hmm. And they don't and they you know, there's there's not a lot of variation. Right. It's not like the you know, the, the Burger King model that went back 40 years or 50 years or whatever. Have it your way. Well, what happened? Burger Burger King went out of business. Right. They're, they're back, obviously, but they went through at least one bankruptcy. McDonald's has over 30,000 stores on this planet. Not a single one of them has ever gone out of business. So clearly they figured something out. The, the paradox of choice you mentioned, is that the same Barry Schwartz that's of thinking big? I don't know. It might mm -hmm. be. Might be. Okay. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of, uh, there's a whole bunch of uh, books like that, like Blink and Thinking Fast and Slow, Kahneman. You know, those are, those are good books too. I, I, those books uh, I don't necessarily recommend because they, um, they may be worth uh, doing on like something like Blinkist, right? Because they, they have one central idea. And there's right. no reason to 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 write a 250 page book for one central idea, in my opinion. Right, a pamphlet will probably do. So, uh, so yeah, so I use Blinkist sometimes because it'll actually read it to you in about a, an abridged version of it in um, in about 20 minutes. Actually, we just did a 5,000 mile trip around this country, my wife and I. Um, 
uh, in the car and we listened to the code breakers uh, or the code breaker about um, Jennifer Doudna and the CRISPR technology that led to the invention of the, uh, you know, the Moderna um, virus. And one them, one her and Emmanuel uh, uh, Charpentier, a uh, Nobel Prize. Mm-hmm. That, that we, we listened to it as an audible book because we were in a car for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles. That I can recommend because that's a very, very interesting story about how the, the inherent conflict between people who are scientists and not business people and when the science becomes a marketable product and they start bumping into the business world, how everything can kind of go kaplooey. Hmm. Right? I was listening to it as a screenwriter, um, kind of writing the screenplay in my head because it, it lays out in, in, a, in a nice three-act structure. Um, and there's enough, there's enough conflict in it that you could, you know, you, you have to fictionalize it a little bit. You have to make up conversations that probably didn't happen but that's the that's the nature of that's when something is based on a true story <laughs> right yeah I'm, I'm fascinated at the moment for a completely opposite reason uh the podcast i'm listening to at the moment bad blood around the um Ooh. theranos the theranos thing um and that obviously i watched, I watched in, the inventor. In a court case it's in a court i watched case. The, yeah i watched the inventor the document the the, the documentary she's a she was a fascinating individual Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I can't figure out if she was a sociopath or if she was, and again, people say this is probably redundant, uh, just a true believer. Uh, there, I have met entrepreneurs who believe so chauvinistly, so, so vehemently that they're right, that they have blinders on and just can't see anything. Every once in a while, it turns out, that they're right you know if you read the big short right michael burry um yeah i mean he stuck to his guns and that was not easy he believed he was right and he was right (laughs) and he made about three billion dollars because of it but he easily could have one little hiccup or one little delay if it had all happened a year later he he could have lost he could have wiped out so there's a fine line there very much so. Uh, what about, a, you, you mentioned Blinkist, which I think is a great uh, tool to remind people that you don't have to read two or 300 page books necessarily. Right. Um, what other current tools or resources are you enjoying using? Well, along the line of Blinkist, I use Quartz, which is, you know, articles, you know, crowdsourced articles or Medium. I used to mm-hmm. write a lot of stuff for Medium. I used to post a lot of, um, of my anti-Trump screeds on medium when i was writing my my personal blog but once once he uh thankfully lost the election all the wind went out of my sails and i I stopped (laughs) writing my personal blog in fact i even took it off my i even it's out there somewhere but i took it off i took the link off my personal site because it's like four years of this was a was enough i don't need to write about that anymore if he runs again in 2024 i'll have to to dust it off with a four-year gap and fire it up again right hopefully hopefully cooler heads will prevail maybe melania will come in and say if you think i'm going to be first lady again you're nuts (laughs) so it's either me or the white house Uh, i don't want i wouldn't want to be well maybe i would want to be a fly on the wall for that conversation (laughs) And you, you mentioned uh, writing. 
and and screenplays. Have any of your screenplays been picked up or? They have not. I actually placed very high in the uh, a couple of years ago in the um, contest called the Nickel, which is Ooh. run by the Oscars. The people who run the Oscars, it's like the premier um, screenwriting uh, competition. I've I've resigned myself to the fact that if I if I ever want to see one of these turn into a film, I'm probably gonna have to do it myself because right. you know pros have read it. Um, you know, uh, I think my work is you know better than ninety nine percent of what you see on TV, but that doesn't mean anything today. Um, it's all about marketability, mm-hmm. and and I look at the stuff that's marketed out there um, that gets picked up, and I look at my stuff, and I'm like. Uh, my stuff is decidedly, say, out of fashion. Um, it's all it's all very story driven as opposed to character driven. And the trend these days is is um, is really about character. Although you could you could go back to even Star Wars. Star Wars is is a is a western set in space, but it's character driven, mm-hmm. right? Luke Skywalker, Obi Wan, Yoda, Chewbacca. These are these are iconic characters, but I would defy anybody to tell me what was the plot, because the plot of the first go round, the plot of whatever the last go round was, with the droid with a mesh message that had to get there. I sat in the movie theater and I said, "Sorry to say, I've seen this this story before, but everybody looks different. <laughs> They're all new characters, but they know how to do that because there's new audiences coming up that that aren't imprinted." by the memory of, Star- I saw Star Wars 1977 when I was in high school. They don't have that memory if for somebody who's you know 25 years old. So it's all new to them. Um, yeah, my stories are, are um, kind of allegorical and, and they, they, all, they have, um, my wife said they're too, she said they're too smart. <laughs> and smart, I think smart meaning not like brainy, but smart meaning like, isn't that a smart suit she's wearing? Um, but I said, I can't make them dumber. <laughs> I just, I, I can't do that. And if you go to my personal website, I have it set up so that you can read the first, you know, I have a synopsis of, of my stories. There's, they're an eclectic mix. Cause I'm always, uh, um, playing with different genres and, um, and you can read the first 10 pages. I have like 11 scripts and you can, you can read the first 10 pages and get a sense for for whether it's something that you're interested in but you know one day when i win the the lottery and have millions of dollars that that i can just blow on stupid stuff hire a crew and a line producer and i'll make a movie nice the bucket list thing (laughs) and i i noticed on your personal site you sell uh, t-shirts with various i uh i don't actually sell them um although i do have a brand my brand is called yapafata which is an Arabic word. It means "o potato" in um, in Arabic, which is a. It, it was like it'd be like saying for crying out loud. It's okay. a uh, right. right. My dad used to say it. Ya patata. So one day I asked him, "What does ya patata mean?" He says it means "o potato," like "o oh, potato." The funny thing is, I did a Google search on the on the you know, sort of the phonetic spelling of it, and it's the only time in my life where I got zero. I mean, I got a blank page zero not even just some dumb cryptic thing that sometimes comes up i got absolutely zero so i registered the name um and uh yeah i do i'm not wearing one of them now but i do my little snarky political um t-shirts most a lot of them are very political 
And I've had people make comments uh, on them. I have a shirt that says guns kill people. And I, I heard a couple of good old boys making some noise, you know, noise in my general direction when I was somewhere probably where I shouldn't have been uh, wearing that shirt. <laughs> they didn't do, you have like a, do, you have a, do you have a favorite quote by, by anyone else? I have so many favorite quotes. Um, I have a shirt that says, um, better to be silent and thought a fool than tweet and remove all doubt. And it has a picture of Lincoln and uh, Trump on it. Yeah, <laughs> that's one. If you go on there, you'll find that snarky T-shirt in there. I have one that says, "I'd rather." The one I dedicated to my wife, which says, "I'd rather be right than happy." <laughs> I know so many people who are like that. They will fight you tooth and nail, and destroy your friendship just to prove themselves right. It's like, let it go. Yeah. Right? Is it totally really? Agree. Is totally it really agree. that important? for you to be right <laughs> I've, I've had many a fire with my wife and she will never admit that, that she might might not have been right about something but i'm married for 30 years so we did yeah, something right something to right. the same woman <laughs> <laughs> so mm. the uh, final final question sure. I, i'm going to kind of give give you the, the coach's hat and say what's the one question that every entrepreneurial business owner should always be asking themselves um should i be doing this really is i know it sounds a little existential um but you need to really question your motivation like why am i doing this because you can look around and discover that there's easier ways to make a living right i trade time for money a decidedly inefficient way to make a living. It really is. You're, you're, you're simply, you're bound by the clock. So you have to ask yourself, uh, is that what I want to do? The reason I actually wrote the book and that one of the impetuses was I was uh, meeting with a whole bunch of coaches and we were talking about group coaching and how to scale a coaching business. Hmm. Right. And a lot of them were frustrated by that very thought. They're saying, I love working one-on-one -on -one with people and I love working one-on-one -on -one with people. But again, it's highly inefficient. So right. what can I do? How can I build this in a way so that I can reach a larger audience, um, but still maintain you know, the same level of effectiveness? The unfortunate answer is you probably can't, right? You, they're probably- Because yeah, you're, tr you're trading one off against the other, aren't you? Yeah. Probably going to be, um, a compromise in your ability. Uh, you know, one of the one of the metrics that they use for for measuring schools is the student to teacher ratio, right? Every I think everyone would agree that a teacher who has thirty students in their class cannot be as effective as a teacher who's got fifteen students in their class, and people will pay gargantuan sums um, for that for that fifteen to one ratio. True. So how can people get hold of you, Henry? What's the best way to get hold of you? Um, um, you can go to henrydas.com, H-E-N-R-Y-D-A-A-S. If you misspell it, D-A-S-S, like people do, it still takes you, takes you there because I'm kind of belts and braces about it. Uh, or Das Knowledge, D-A-A-S Knowledge, or D-A-S-S Knowledge, again. <laughs> always have redundancies in place for, um, for people who misspell um, uh, One is my, my you know, the, the Henry Das site has all my, you know, snarky t-shirts and golf trips and 
my settlers boards, which I'm very proud of. Right. Um, uh, but the DOS knowledge is really the, the business site. So, and there's a lot of freebies on there. Five reasons small businesses fail. I have a, I have another like 25 page PDF about 10 things to ask when hiring a coach. So even though I may not be taking on, um, you know, co entrepreneurial coaching clients now, it's a pretty good primer for going out into the world and looking for coaches because it's hard. It's hard hiring. Um, there's a, a lot of moving parts to that, to that relationship there. And usually, you know, costs a considerable amount of money. So you want to make as intelligent a decision as you can up front. Wonderful. So, yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time and, and sharing your insights and, and uh, thoughts today and uh, have yourself a fantastic day. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate being here. Okay. Thank you. Well, what did you think? Was that brandtastic? Did it give you some ideas and actions that you can take right now to build your business and real estate personal brand? So what's stopping you? Get to it. And if you're wondering where your real estate personal brand currently stands and some steps to make it more brandtastic, you can download our free real estate personal brand checklist at reibranded.com forward slash checklist. That's reibranded.com forward slash checklist. Thank you for listening and have yourself a brandtastic day.